first from Mr. Paul Barnes. May it please the court? Yes, sir. The district court's failure to apply the undue burden test here or give any consideration to the state's interest, the state's undeniably legitimate interest, was a reversible error. The Supreme Court has applied the undue burden test to each abortion case that it has decided since and including Casey, but the district court did not apply the undue burden test. The district court instead chose to apply a categorical, absolutist approach. The Supreme Court has never squarely held or instructed that the court should strike down any law which could be characterized as a ban or prohibition, ignore evidence of changed circumstances, but apply the undue burden test to everything else. I'm Paul Barnes from the Mississippi Attorney General's Office. I'm joined today by my colleague Wilson Minor, also at council table. We have counsel for the Amici States of Louisiana and Texas. You would acknowledge, of course, that Casey and other cases state pretty clearly that there shall be no prohibitions of pre-viability abortions. Is your argument that Mississippi law complies with that statement or that, a very different argument, or that that language from Casey should be tempered by other language and other Supreme Court opinions? Two different arguments. Well, I think they're joined, Your Honor. I think for the one, certainly there are statements in Gonzales which elaborate a bit on Casey, but at the same time, Casey looked at- Well, Gonzales takes Casey as assumed to be the law. It does, Your Honor. It doesn't purport to change Casey. No, it does not, Your Honor, but Casey did not stop. Casey said there's three principles at work here. We give effect to all three, and they gave us the undue burden test. We think that those three principles are inherent in the undue burden test, and in Gonzales, the court expressly endorsed the findings of Congress that there were special ethical and moral concerns raised by partial birth abortion that justified a special prohibition. So it is our argument that, yes, if the court applies the undue burden test, considers evidence of the special circumstances, especially new evidence concerning fetal pain, if the court finds that compelling, the court then should consider the burden on women, apply the undue burden test, and come to the result. Well, if you don't mind, let's take the two steps I've laid out step by step. Is this a prohibition on pre-viability abortions? Not per se, Your Honor. We think that a ban is a total ban, such as in this court addressed in Sojourner T, when you ban all abortions for any reason. Now, certainly a law, when you start talking about an effective ban or a partial ban. How is this not a prohibition? Well, it is a prohibition for one week, one out of the 16 weeks. It could be a prohibition of one of the 16 weeks 
and during which this law operates. And it is important to note that this clinic, this law only has an effect for one week because the clinic here, Jackson Women's Health Organization, voluntarily stops providing abortions at 16. You're saying it's not a prohibition for the first 15 weeks, but once you hit week 15, it is a prohibition. Well, it could be categorized as one, Your Honor. However, we think you still have to apply the undue burden test, and then we get into the question of how many women, for how many women would this law actually be an undue burden or undue interference? All we know is that in 2017, there were 90 women for whom this law was potentially a burden, but we don't know for how many of those women, how many of those women would actually be burdened. We don't know how many could have obtained an abortion earlier. But yes, it certainly would have an impact for that one week from 15 to 16 weeks LMP. Yes. And Your Honor, of course, a big problem— Then is your argument that even though it's a prohibition, there's other language? Because personally, I don't see how you get around the prohibition language. So it must be that you have something else in Supreme Court opinions that you're looking at? No, Your Honor. I think it's starting in Casey itself. Casey opened the door by saying we give effect to each of the three principles. States can't prohibit abortion prior to viability. After viability, states can absolutely prohibit abortion so long as there's a sufficient health exception. And then you have the principle that the state—the major impact of Casey, that the state's interest in protecting unborn life and maternal health exists throughout pregnancy. The court threw out the trimester framework, threw out strict scrutiny, said here's the undue burden test. And then the court applied the undue burden test. And that's exactly what we're saying the district court should have done here. The Supreme Court in Casey did not say ignore all evidence of other state interest, ignore all evidence of changed circumstances. In fact, the court actually looked at that evidence but ultimately concluded that the evidence did not change the facts sufficiently. And that's important because facts of constitutional dimension change over time. The state interests are not static. The state of science and technology and medicine are not static. Supreme Court decisions like Casey, like Roe, like Gonzales have to be viewed in the context in which they were made and based on the factual and evidentiary record on which they were made. Now, that's Shelby County. I mean, Shelby County said in the four decades since the preclearance formula was created, the facts have changed in those four decades and we've got to look at that and it's no longer constitutional to apply those principles today. And that is exactly what the Supreme Court did in Casey. The federal courts should not willfully blind themselves to changes in fact, important developments in medicine, new and novel evidence. Now, it is particularly troublesome in this case the way the district court addressed some of the state's interest, particularly maternal health. I mean, the legislative findings contained in HB 1510 were due deference. Now, yes, the district court had an independent duty to look beyond those findings if it saw fit. However, the district court said, I'm not going to consider any evidence or any fact other than the point at which a fetus becomes viable. No other evidence is important to me. I'm just not going to consider it. That is the legal error from which all the other problems flowed. From that point on, the outcome of this case was preordained. Now, the district court said that. However, in the permanent injunction, the district court devoted two and a half pages, some two and a half pages of eight or ten point footnotes, 
to attempting to rebut the legislative findings on maternal health of the legislature that said this law advances the state interest in maternal health. And to do so, the district court didn't simply, didn't rely on any evidence. The court relied on extrajudicial materials, extrajudicial research conducted by the court itself, um, and two and a half pages worth. Now, plaintiffs attempt to uh, just say that, well, that's just dicta, it doesn't matter. But, uh, Your Honor, to me, dicta is um, a stray comment, a gratuitous remark. Um, we don't think you can properly characterize two and a half pages of, of extrajudicial analysis or analysis by the extrajudicial research, independent research by the court as, as dicta. You know, it's, it's one of the hallmarks of our judicial system is that our courts decide cases based on the evidentiary record, on the evidence before us. We don't decide cases based on presumption or assumption or supposition. Um, I mean, that's the essence of due process. Now, then if you go back to the beginning of this case, the very beginning, when the plaintiffs moved for a TRO, they attached an affidavit from Dr. Carr Ellis. Um, Dr. Carr Ellis, that de declaration is at pages 53 to 57 of the record. In the declaration, Dr. Carr Ellis addressed um, much more than the point of viability. Dr. Carr Ellis offered opinions about um, maternal health, about complication rates and the relative safety of abortion, about the reasons why women obtain abortions. Now, the fact that the, the plaintiffs raised that, injected this, opened the door to this issue in the beginning, and the fact that the district court, on the other hand, book, other hand bookended it by including two and a half pages of analysis uh, in, the, in the permanent injunction shows that on some level, both the plaintiffs and the district court understood both the relevance and the importance of this evidence. Um, but we were not allowed to pursue evidence, further evidence which might um, support the legislative um, findings. And when evidentiary rulings in and of themselves preclude meaningful, create a record or fail to create a record or don't permit a record to be created that permits meaningful appellate review, it is an abuse of discretion. And that's important also because of what the court told us in Gonzales about the need for a dialogue about the consequences of electing a late-term abortion. In Gonzales, the court said, the state interest in protecting respect for life, which includes unborn life, is advanced by a dialogue which it benefits the political and legal systems, the medical profession, expectant women, and the public itself, society itself. Now, the legislative findings, like the legislature made here in HB 1510, that was information the legislature thought was important for that dialogue. It thought it was important, information that was important for the Mississippi women, the women in Mississippi to receive. They certainly were not gonna receive that information from the plaintiffs. Plaintiffs don't want a dialogue at all. Plaintiffs want to silence all opposing viewpoints on the issue of abortion. That's exactly what the district court here did by refusing to consider any evidence of the state's interest. Um, and of course, that is the approach that other courts that have considered laws similar to this have taken. And of course, that is the best and fastest way, the easiest way to cut off debate, to cut off any dialogue. And Your Honor, we think that fetal pain, the evidence about fetal pain in Dr. Connick's report shows that 
that raises a sort of special ethical and moral consideration referred to in Gonzales that shows that these post-15-week abortions, if the fetus is capable of feeling pain or developing the neural structures necessary to feel pain at that time, that renders these procedures every bit as brutal and inhumane as partial birth abortion. So I'm running short on time, Your Honor, and I just wanted to mention very quickly the issues of standing and remedy. As I said before, this clinic stops performing abortions at 16 weeks. If this law, it only has potential effect for one week maximum. It has no effect on this clinic. It has no effect on Mississippi women after 16 weeks. If this law took effect at 18 weeks, these plaintiffs would not have standing. Plaintiffs say we're conflating remedy and standing. You're out of time, Mr. Barnes. Yes, Your Honor. We'll hear next from Ms. Beth Crossman. You have five minutes. Thank you. May it please the Court, Beth Klusman for Texas and Louisiana. Does it matter if an unborn child feels pain when she is pulled apart during an abortion, or is the right to a pre-viability abortion so absolute that no state interest could ever overcome it? That's the question presented by this case, and the answer comes from applying the undue burden test. And we know from Hellerstedt that the undue burden test requires considering both the benefits, so the impact on women, or excuse me, the benefits, the state's interest in this case, and the burdens, which would be the impact on women. But the district court declared all of that irrelevant. He refused to apply the undue burden test and refused to give Mississippi the discovery it needed to defend its law. The district court must consider the state's interest in these cases, and states must be allowed to fully defend their laws through discovery and evidence. Now, a lot has been briefed about the viability line, and that's an important line in abortion jurisprudence, but it is not dispositive in this case. The viability standard simply tells the court what test do you apply. Pre-viability, you apply the undue burden test. Post-viability, you look for life and health exceptions. So take Gonzales for an example. Gonzales concerned the Partial Birth Abortion Ban Act. You didn't see the Supreme Court struggling over whether it was a ban or whether it was a regulation. It simply said this law applies pre-viability, so we're going to apply the undue burden test. And to your question earlier, Judge Ho, I think it's more of the second option that you provided, that there is case law that suggests that this viability standard is not as absolute as plaintiffs suggest. I would point you to three cases. First of all, Casey itself. It upheld a parental consent provision. Now, a parental consent provision bans abortion for minors unless they can get consent or a judicial bypass. So there are some state interests that are so significant, and it's in those cases, that they can prevent someone from obtaining a pre-viability abortion. The second would be the Supreme Court's recent decision in Planned Parenthood v. Box. In his concurrence, Justice Thomas explained that Casey did not create a categorical rule. It considered only the burdens, the laws, and the interests that were in front of it, and it should not be extended any further than that. And finally, this court in Jackson Women's Health v. Currier at 760 F. 3rd 448, that was the 2014 decision on admitting privileges. At the end, the court explained that there could someday be a law that closed 
all abortion clinics in the state and that law could still survive the new burden test but it would depend on the facts and the circumstances presented in that case so a law shutting down every abortion clinic in the state would certainly be more burdensome than the law presented to the court today but the court still indicated that that would be permissible again given the right facts and circumstances and finally if you back up and take sort of a 30,000 foot view of Casey Casey adopted the undue burden test because courts were not giving credit to state's interest the entire purpose of the undue burden test is to account for the interest of the state in the protection of unborn life so to say that there is a separate track where you don't consider the state's interest at all in certain cases is not consistent with Casey now the discovery needed in this case I think that was cut off by the district court would include discovery on burdens the clinics admit that they are only offering abortions two to three times a week so I think there's a significant question as to whether women seeking abortions after 15 weeks are forced to do so by state law or because of the clinics preferences as to when it chooses to open also the safety of abortion as mr. Barnes pointed out plaintiffs presented as testimony to that effect in their TRO but then refused to answer any discovery questions about that so that's information that needs to be discovered that's evidence that needs to be presented and that all should be considered in the undue burden analysis now I do want to turn to the district court suggestion of animus the district courts comments and footnotes 22 and 40 violated multiple rules he used non-record evidence he discussed unrelated laws both in subject matter and that were five decades old as we know from Shelby County we don't judge states by their conduct from 50 years ago and there's two reasons why this is problematic number one it infects the merits decision the district court declared all of Mississippi's evidence of its interest irrelevant but then decided to do its own research and decide what Mississippi's true reason was and then there's just a fundamental problem with assuming that one side is always acting in bad faith that the idea that the protection of unborn life necessarily means that you are a racist or a sexist the district court had no no grounds for making that assumption and it violates Casey's principle that men and women of good conscience will always disagree on these issues but they are still acting in good conscience and the district court did not grant that to Mississippi in this case so we ask that the court's decision be reversed thank you miss Crespo Hillary Schneller may it please the court Hillary Schneller for Appalachia's Jackson Women's Health Organization and Dr. Carr Ellis there's no dispute that 15 weeks is well before viability the state concedes this fact is the only fact that matters here and based on that fact the district court correctly granted summary judgment against the ban a contrary result the result the state seeks would abandon decades of Supreme Court precedent guaranteeing each woman the right to decide whether to terminate a pre-viability pregnancy so hypothetically just in a future world imagine a consensus amongst doctors and scientists that babies can feel pain at week 15 what is the what do we do with that kind of evidence so I'd first say that as you're acknowledging that's a hypothetical as understood but on fairness is hypothetical that we're forced into due to how the district court handled the case in other words we don't have the data one way or the other that what I just said could be completely right it could be completely wrong we don't know as a appellate judge appellate court looking at a trial record 
Right, I would just but we have to, to the problem. amicus brief submitted by the Society for Maternal Fetal Medicine that points out that all the best medical evidence is to the contrary. Say, second. But you agree there was no trial on this issue? That's correct, because under the Supreme Court's precedent holding that before viability, it is the woman's right and not the state's to make this decision. So it is for the woman to weigh that possibility, again, against the medical evidence to weigh that possibility in making her decision. But so let's say, but let's say there was such evidence available, again, hypothetically. What is the relevance, in your view, of that pain evidence? Again, I think it is for the woman to decide. The Supreme Court has balanced her interest in autonomy and liberty and the state's interest, and it is for her to consider that possibility in making the decision whether to terminate a pregnancy. Do you think it would be inconsistent with Roe for, uh, for there to be acknowledgment of an interest in preventing pain? Let me say it again. I didn't say it very well. Uh, what, do, is it your view that, that fetal pain is completely irrelevant to, to the legal analysis under, under Roe v. Wade? I think it is Ill irrelevant to the analysis regarding a prohibition of abortion. The state can pursue its interests through certain regulations of abortion, but it cannot pursue those interests by directly prohibiting a woman from making this choice before viability. The reason I ask is, uh, I believe Justice Blackmun, the author of Roe, talks about how it's obvious, I think to use his word, that uh, the interest that the state has in protecting the embryo increases progressively and dramatically as the baby's capacity to feel pain increases. So doesn't that make the issue of pain relevant to the analysis? Well, I think the court has decided that the, the line is at viability, the point at which the fetus has a reasonable likelihood of sustained survival, independent from the woman. At that point, the state may prohibit abortion. Before that point, none of these interests is strong enough to prohibit her from making that decision. I agree with you that Casey says that explicitly, that the line is no prohibitions pre-viability. But doesn't Casey also invite factual development on this front? I mean, it specifically says, as of Casey, there's no changes of fact that have rendered viability uh, no longer appropriate uh, as where the balance of interest tips. But there's also additional language about how factual change would obviously be relevant to the analysis. To the extent there might be. Roe changed the facts, sorry, facts changed from Roe to Casey. I think Mississippi's theory is that the facts have changed since Casey to today or perhaps into the future. Well, from Roe to Casey, and I would say till today as well, the court has said that none of those changed facts alter the underlying point that viability is the point at which a woman gets to make that decision. So from Roe to Casey, yes, the court abandoned the trimester framework in favor of the undue burden standard, but said that adoption of the undue burden standard does not disturb Roe's essential holding that before viability, it is the woman's autonomy and liberty interest that prevails. Right, but, but if we accept that, and I think you're accepting this, that Casey discusses the potential for factual change, it just found no factual change uh, uh, given the, the evidence available in 1992, where do we get that factual development, if not at trial? Well, I, I think that here the state was permitted to put in its own evidence. It put in an opposition. But only evidence as to viability, not evidence that Justice Blackman talked about in terms of pain. 
Well, the district court's order did not prevent the state from putting in a declaration in opposition to summary judgment. That declaration is in the record. It was perfectly appropriate for the district court not to consider the facts in that declaration because it is irrelevant under governing law. The state is free to make its argument that governing law should be different, and it is for the Supreme Court to change that law. But until it does, the district court is bound by the law that governs today, which is that before viability, the only fact that matters, or viability is the only fact that matters when it comes to a prohibition on abortion. So let me use an analogy. In the Eighth Amendment context, the court has made clear that, just like Justice Blackmun, pain to the death row inmate can be relevant, but you have to prove it up at trial. As of Bays v. Rees, the court said there was not sufficient evidence of pain, but we've got later courts, I believe, litigating these issues, having trials as to whether the technology has changed since Bays so that death row inmates are, in fact, at risk of substantial pain. Why not have the same factual development in this context? What's the difference between Eighth Amendment analysis and the Casey analysis? Well, I think, again, the Supreme Court has been clear that before viability, all of these things are for the woman to weigh, and the state cannot foreclose her choice based on its interest. Again, the district court here was within its broad discretion not to consider facts that are irrelevant under governing law. The state has been free to put those facts into the record to argue to the Supreme Court the law should be different, but it is not for the Supreme Court to, or sorry, it is not for the district court to look at those facts. And every single time someone was unhappy with governing law, they could come into court and say, we get discovery on facts unbounded by relevance, and the federal rules on relevance would have no limit. So your point is pain is irrelevant regardless at all times under the doctrine? I would say, again, it is for the woman to weigh that possibility before viability. How does that square with Justice Blackmun, that the state's interest, I don't want to be unfair if you're not aware of this, this is Webster, 492 U.S. at 552. This is Justice Blackmun quoting Justice Stevens. I should think it obvious that the state's interest in the protection of the embryo increases progressively and dramatically as the organism's capacity to feel pain increases day by day. And to be fair, it's feel pain, experience pleasure, survive, and react to surroundings. Justice Blackmun seems to think this is relevant. I agree with you. If it's not relevant, then it's not relevant. The district court was correct. But it seems relevant under Blackmun and under other, that's the only quote I'm providing, but there are other quotes. I mean, the state's interests are relevant in the context of what the state can do to regulate abortion, but none of those interests are strong enough to support a prohibition of abortion because in that context it is for her to weigh. So I don't think we're saying anything different. It's not, it's not. But it's relevant, just not enough to support a prohibition. I think that's correct, that the state can pursue its interests to the extent they do not impose an undue burden through regulations of abortion, but none of those interests are strong enough to support a ban, which is what we have here. So there's no close call. I don't want to put words in your mouth. I want to make sure I get it exactly right. Pain is relevant, not irrelevant. Relevant is just that your view is it's not going to be enough to support a ban. 
the court has said the state can regulate to pursue its interest in potential life, which is, I think, what the state is talking about here, to the extent it does not impose an undue burden. But here we are talking about a ban, so none of the state's interests are strong enough to support such a prohibition before viability. Why is that not an issue that should be developed at trial? Whether A, there is pain that genuinely is felt at a certain period of time, say 15 weeks, and B, that that pain, the only way to mitigate the pain, uh, is a prohibition as opposed to anesthesia or some other uh, regulation. I, mean, I, I, I take your point that you don't think that ban would ultimately survive, but, but we're here on an, an issue of the complete lack of a trial. Because under governing law, the Supreme Court has said viability is the only issue that matters as to a prohibition. Well, what do you do then with the, the language in Casey, this is the majority opinion in Casey uh, at 861, no changes of fact have rendered viability more or less appropriate as the point at which the balance of interest tips. Doesn't that clearly raise the potential that someday there will be changes of fact that would render viability uh, more uh, differently appropriate, not, not appro no longer appropriate? So, I'm not saying it's happened, it may never happen, but it seems to invite continued medical technology and development, doesn't it? Right, and I think here the state was able to make that case through its opposition. But how? I mean, I thought we agreed that the state specifically was forbidden from presenting any evidence uh, of its fetal life or fetal pain interest because viability was just sort of rendered a absolute principle. The state was prohibited from discovering facts from plaintiffs that are irrelevant under governing law. They did put in a declaration in opposition to summary judgment about its interests and they are free to argue to the But it wasn't respected by the district court, right? I mean, it, it, they weren't allowed to try it. When I say respect, all, all I mean is it wasn't a triable issue. The district court deemed anything other than viability legally irrelevant. Given governing Supreme Court right. precedent. And, it did so, but, and the district court did so without mentioning Justice Blackmun or Justice Stevens or any of this analysis. That's correct, because the Supreme Court has been clear before viability, the state's interests are not strong enough to support a prohibition this, the state, I don't think, has been precluded from arguing that law should be different and can argue that to the Supreme Court. If the Supreme Court believes the facts have changed or would like to consider whether the facts have changed, the proper course would be to remand and then consider those facts. But given governing law, there's no reason to consider facts that are currently irrelevant. But that's not how we do Eighth Amendment law, right? Uh, I don't think what the Supreme Court said in Bayes is all right, inmates, you can no longer make these arguments before district court. You have to get us to grant cert. I believe there are trials happening uh, where inmates are arguing that the technology has changed. We are now feeling, we now can prove to you that we're feeling more pain than you originally thought as a phase. I mean, I guess I, I would just go back to the foundations of the due process right are the woman's liberty and autonomy to make this decision. And so the court has left it to women before viability to weigh the various factors and make the ultimate decision. And the state has a great deal of leeway to pass regulations in support of its interests, but that do not impose an undue burden. And again, none of those interests are strong enough to support a direct prohibition. And I, you know, I think that 
the reason the court cut the line at viability is, again, to strike a balance between the state's interests and the woman's liberty interests. The viability line recognizes that it's the woman's right to make this decision to whether or not to continue a pregnancy up until the point of viability, the point at which a fetus can survive independent from the woman. Until that point, the state can regulate in support of its interests by, for example, ensuring a woman's decision is more informed, but it cannot strike at the heart of the right itself by prohibiting her from making this decision. Um, the, the state discussed a little bit the notion that this is a regulation and not a ban, and I wanted to comment that I think that is disingenuous and contradicted by the court's precedent for, for two reasons. The state fundamentally misunderstands the right at stake. It is the right to make the decision whether to terminate a pregnancy prior to viability, not merely at some point prior to viability. It guarantees the woman this right regardless of the point within that time that she seeks an abortion. And second, the ban's limited exceptions don't convert it into a regulation or make it constitutional the court held in Casey, regardless of whether exceptions are made for particular circumstances, a state may not prohibit any woman from making the decision to terminate her pregnancy before viability. Um, and as was discussed with the state uh, a bit, that Gonzalez does not disturb this precedent. Gonzalez involved a regulation that prohibited one rarely used method of abortion but was not an outright ban. In upholding that regulation, Gonzalez specifically observed that it did not prescribe the most commonly used method of abortion at that stage of pregnancy. In other words, the law did not deny any woman the right to terminate her pregnancy before viability. The ban here is fundamentally different because it is an outright prohibition for nearly every woman seeking an abortion after 15 weeks. It clearly violates Supreme Court precedent. Um, and I think we've discussed the discovery and evidentiary rulings um, somewhat, and just to underscore, I, I think the, the state's argument that the district court abused its discretion by not considering these facts on summary judgment is inconsistent with the federal rules that provide summary judgment shall be granted where there's no genuine dispute as to any material fact. The only material fact here is whether 15 weeks is before or after viability. It is. I'm sorry to keep harping on this. I, I'm honestly just trying to struggle to understand how best to interpret Casey. And it's admittedly uh, not the clearest opinion in the world. Uh, but at page 861, it says, again, no changes of fact have rendered viability uh, uh, more or less appropriate in terms of the balancing of interests. Why is that not, uh, ha given that that obviously means that there could be changes of fact that would render viability the wrong way to balance interests, how do we develop those facts? I mean, because normally when you talk about facts, when a Supreme Court talks about facts, it's talking about trials. So what's unique about Casey? I don't think it's unique. I think the, the right, precedent governs what is relevant today. To the extent those facts might change, the Supreme Court can look at this record, the state, again, put in facts that the district court was correct not to And that's to true in the death penalty context as well but we still have trials. Are there trials about whether the death penalty as practiced today continues to be humane, continues to be painless or sufficiently painless to the death or a convict? Why is there, it may be that Casey's different. I just, I'm asking you to tell me how is Casey different from Bayes? 
I mean, I think that the right that the court has protected in Roe and Casey is that it is for the woman to make this decision until the fetus has a reasonable likelihood of sustained survival independent from her. And until the court changes that underlying, the interests and liberties underlying this right, it is for the woman to make this decision. And if the court decided that the facts had changed, it could remand and consider what facts would be newly relevant. I think I take your position to be only the U.S. Supreme Court gets to re-litigate these facts. Is that sort of, I'm not trying to put words in your mouth, is that sort of what you're saying? I think the court has been clear what the governing rule is, and it is for the Supreme Court to change that rule. Yes. Where in Casey indicates, because obviously we want to be faithful to Casey, where in Casey indicates that these factual changes are only for the Supreme Court to litigate, given that the tradition in the Eighth Amendment and just the tradition in law is that facts are tried in court, in district courts, not at the Supreme Court. I think it's really the principles of stare decisis that make clear that the district courts are bound by governing precedent, and given that- Under the stare decisis argument, Bays versus Rees would be the law. There'd be no more litigation about the pain, the existence of pain in capital punishment. So it seems to me you're drawing sort of a special rule for Casey, which may or may not exist. I'm not saying I know what the answer is, but this seems different from the Eighth Amendment. I mean, I think there is one part, there is this fundamental right that the court has held, encompassed in the 14th Amendment, this right to decide whether to terminate a pregnancy before viability. The state can pursue its interest in regulating this right, but up until the point of viability cannot prohibit her from making this choice one way or the other. I don't know if I can compare it to other areas of law where there's a fundamental right at stake here where it is her decision whether or not to continue a pregnancy. By the way, I don't want to unfairly spring on you the Eighth Amendment framework, if it's okay with the rest of the court. If you want to file something later to develop it, I certainly would love to hear it. Of course, in Gonzales, the court did have a record developed for it. It looked at legislative findings and the product of legislative inquiry. So the courts aren't the sole source of developing changes, et cetera. Perhaps legislatures are the primary source of that, or at least a source of it. Right, and in Gonzales, the court looked at factual findings of Congress in considering a regulation of abortion. Here, there are- And then, because those findings by legislature are constitutional fact findings themselves. So it's just an observation, not a, and you're, before we ask and answer that question one more time. Your time has expired. Thank you very much. Thank you. Mr. Barnes, you have three minutes on the bus. Thank you, Your Honor. Judge Hill, I think the unanswered question, I believe you were trying to get that with opposing counsel, is well, where's the Supreme Court supposed to get the factual record to consider whether the facts have changed? I mean, it's one thing to say, well, file for cert if the Supreme Court wants to consider it, it can remand for additional proceedings. But we all know the reality is the court would say, well, this isn't a good vehicle for cert because the record's incomplete. So that's a game set and match to the other side. 
By the same token, if Stenberg had cut off all debate on whether partial birth abortion was, or a law banning partial birth abortion was constitutional or not, it never would have been a Gonzales. Same token, on the other end of the political spectrum. You think anything's going to cut off all the debate? Well, no, Your Honor, and I would say that that is one. One would hope, but not in my lifetime. Your Honor, the Supreme Court, I certainly believe, was mistaken when it thought it was going to actually reduce debate or cut off debate. We respectfully disagree with that. But if there was not, on the other end of the political spectrum, if Bowers had cut off all debate, there never would have been a Lawrence v. Texas. Here, most relevant, if Roe had cut off all debate, had foreclosed all possibility, you would have never gotten Casey. But we did. Now, we're just asking this court to instruct the district court to apply the undue burden test. They're asking this court to say it's correct that the district courts should never permit the development of a record on changed factual circumstances. Now, I believe I heard our opposing counsel admit that, as you pointed out to Judge Ho, Justice Blackmun's comments about pain, I believe she admitted it was relevant, but then she did not explain how we were supposed to get that evidence in the record. Now, it is true we were able to submit a declaration from our expert. We did that. We had the legislative findings on maternal health, and we had legislative findings on fetal development. Dr. Connick's report linked that. However, we were not permitted to get any information from the plaintiffs. Discovery is a two-way street. Some of the things that plaintiffs had that we were not permitted to go after, internal communications at the clinic concerning safety, complication rates. We have some statistical reports the clinic gives us, but we don't know what their internal documents show. We wanted to see those. The identity of other people with knowledge. Who do the plaintiffs know has discoverable knowledge? That's something we couldn't get. We didn't have ourselves. The state interests are always relevant to the issue of undue burden, fundamental fairness. We were denied. Defendants were denied that here. And so, Your Honor, we respectfully request that the court reverse and remain. Thank you, Mr. Barnes. Thank you, sir. The case will be submitted. That concludes the cases set for oral argument this morning. The case will be taken under advisement. This court will adjourn until 9 o'clock tomorrow morning.